and extract a podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, let me just go to um, um, one set for a second. Let me just go and live stream on the Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, I will introduce both of you, both of you uh, briefly and, uh, you know, uh, not read the long bios. Um, and then uh, we go straight to um, to, uh, to 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 the crux of the issue. It will be on the Free Rohingya Coalition's um, Facebook page, mm-hmm. and it will take about 30 seconds for it to become uh, active. Mm-hmm. And I will let you know as soon as uh, we are live. Okay, let me type the uh, uh, title. Um, question of. Okay, uh, just bear with me for a second. Um, Greg Stenson. We are live. A good evening, or good um, if you're in Asia, uh, in places like Myanmar or um, Bangkok or Phnom Penh, where uh, Khmer Rouge genocide took place 40 years ago. Um, I am Zani. Um, <clears throat> I am hosting this a very important um, conversation with two of the world's foremost. Um, scholars of genocide, uh, Professor Gregory Stanton um, in Virginia and Professor Daniel Fierstein in uh, Buenos Aires, um, Argentina. That, uh, you know, if you're concerned about or if you have studied genocide, these are names uh, that need no introduction. Uh, they are both past president-elects of the International Association of Genocide Scholars and Professor Stanton has long been a, uh, a towering intellectual uh, whose work many of us younger generation activists and scholars uh, use uh, you know, uh, very much in our own um, reading or understanding of genocides in various places. And I work on uh, Myanmar's ongoing genocide of Rohingya people over the last 10 years. And also Professor uh, uh, Daniel Fierstein 
is a noted author of Genocide as a Social Practice, uh, the genocides that took place in Nazi Germany in the 30s and 40s and in, the, uh, in his native Argentina under military rule. Um, I am dedicating this conversation to my late um, uh, professor or mentors at um, the University of Wisconsin at Madison. His name was uh, Robert H. Kale. He was uh, <clears throat> military intelligence officers for the US military, uh, German American from um, the Kenosha, Wisconsin. And he interrogated um, scores of mid-ranking and junior SS officers, uh, essentially looking at this question of uh, you know, the intention. How do these uh, killers uh, you know, working as part of the very elite executioner group, uh, SS, uh, justify their deeds or misdeeds uh, more accurately to themselves and to others. And, and I was uh, a young student in my um, late 20s from Burma, wanting to understand how the Burmese military officers try to justify their heinous acts against the different groups, ethnic groups in Burma. So, so this question is very dear and near to me, and I'm dedicating this conversation to Professor Robert K, who passed away a few years ago. Um, as you know, uh, you know, back in 2019, um, uh, to be precise, 11th of December, uh, Myanmar's council, uh, Professor William Shabazz of Middlesex University, and also a professor at University of Leiden, and also a former colleague of these two distinguished speakers today, uh, Greg and Daniel, um, had made a rather outlandish argument at the International Court of Justice defending Myanmar alongside Aung San Suu Kyi and denying that genocide was ever committed or is being committed because he said um, if you know the Myanmar's uh, deportation or other crimes can be interpreted in any other ways. The, the, in, the, the question of intent never arises. In other words, if a, um, a state's uh, violence could be interpreted in more than one way, the interpretation of genocide is necessarily and automatically precluded. So I want to go straight to both of you um, to, to see how you responded when you read um, Shabazz's, um, you know, uh, the, I think almost 20 page, um, you know, this legal defense. Um, can I can I ask uh, Professor Stanton first uh, and then go to Daniel? Sure. Yeah, I want to uh, address this argument that uh, genocide must be the only explanation for the actions of the perpetrator uh, state. Um, that position uh, was first enunciated in Shabbos's own treatise, uh, his uh, treatise called Genocide in International Law, which uh, was published, I believe around 2000 or 2002. And in that, in that treatise, he makes the argument that ethnic cleansing, as he put it, and genocide have two quite different specific intents, I'm quoting. 
One is intended to displace a population, the other to destroy it. The issue is one of intent, and it is logically inconceivable that the two agendas coexist. <laughs> I immediately wrote to Professor Chavez when he published this book, and that book had a huge impact. In fact, it was, I think, relied upon in both of the ICJ cases that have preceded this case, in the Bosnia case and the Croatia case. Uh, I said, Bill, you're wrong. Uh, the same act can have several intents. And in fact, you can charge um, a perpetrator with more than one crime based on the same act. Uh, and so, in other words, you really haven't understood that, for instance, genocidal massacres can be used as a tactic to bring about forced deportation, which is the usual word for the usual meaning of, of uh, ethnic cleansing. And by the way, forced deportation should be the word we use because that's the legal word and it is the crime. There is no treaty that outlaws ethnic cleansing and we'll get to that. I'd like to discuss that further. But um, Professor Chavez had an impact on the ICJ in its Bosnia and its Croatia decisions. And in both of those decisions, the ICJ held that to prove genocidal intent, destruction of a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group must be the only intent that can be inferred from a state's actions. If some other intent can be inferred, such as ethnic cleansing, then the actions lack the required genocidal intent. I believe those cases were wrongly decided, as did several of the dissenting judges in the ICJ at that time. I believe they were wrongly decided because I think that is an incorrect concept of intent for genocide. Uh, Daniel? Yes, I, I agree with Greg. I think there is there are four, five, main ideas in, in Shabbat's presentation. And it is interesting to go to any of them trying to understand what's the problem. So Greg has, uh, the, the Greg's view is about the first one and it is the more problematic, this idea that genocide as the only plausible inference. So that this is, this is nowhere in the UN Genocide Convention. <clears throat> and this idea is absolutely contrary to the spirit of the convention, which its main idea is trying to prevent, to avoid or to punish the commission of genocide. So the idea that genocide should be the only plausible inference is a legal idea that has no possible social and historical examples because social reality is complex. And usually you have a lot of variables working in the same fact. So the idea that you can find any other possibilities or any other inferences would mean that the UN Genocide Convention would be absolutely not applicable to any historical case because you always can find 
different possibilities and different ideas, even among the perpetrators and different policies working all together. Some of them complementary, as Greg told us, the idea of forced deportation is complementary to the idea of extermination. Some of them could be even contradictory and it could happen in the same process because social reality is complex and it's much more complex than what uh, uh, the imagination of a legal scholar trying to create some schema to understand a complex reality. And that is connected with a second point, which is the, the disregard and disqualification in the Shabbos presentation from the fact-finding missions, particularly Yangi Lee, with this idea that she is not a legal scholar, so she couldn't understand genocide. And it is, it is interesting because this argument, we could use the argument exactly in the opposite way, just trying to understand, as William Javas is only a legal scholar, he can't understand realities because realities used to be well beyond what a legal scholar can imagine in, in, in his schemas. So that's the, the second element, trying to understand that reality is complex, that the fact-finding missions are the ways in which you have some facts that are happened in different places, and then you have to analyze how to understand these different facts through the different processes that are being there. But I'm also worried about other three elements. We can talk about them uh, in, more, in more detail. But the second is the difference between genocide and ethnic cleansing. And I also agree with Greg that uh, the, the correct concept is forced deportation. And another very interesting uh, genocide scholar, Martin Shaw, has developed very well why ethnic cleansing is a very problematic concept because uh, with this concept, you are somehow legitimizing and justifying the, the idea of the perpetrator. So the, the practice is forced deportation and the idea that you can clean a territory ethnically is a problematic idea on its own. So trying to distinguish ethnic cleansing from genocide is the second main problem in Shabbos arguments because they are not only uh, practices that are absolutely intertwined, but even uh, the, the way in which you qualify the practice could justify and legitimate the, the genocide. And then a third important element is the differentiation between genocide and crimes against humanity, which it is interesting. I, I disagree with Shabbos in this way. I think that there is a problem when you are calling crimes against humanity to something which is genocide because the main difference is the attack to civilian populations against the attack and the intention to destroy a group. And that's the main 
difference. But in this case, in the ICG case, it is even more problematic because in most of Shava's production, the idea is don't worry about genocide because you have crimes against humanity and you can qualify it as a crimes against humanity. So anyway, the perpetrators will be punished. But the problem with the ICG is that the ICG only can intervene in the case of genocide. So in this situation, when you are saying, no, don't worry about genocide because it is crimes against humanity and it is the same, clearly it is not the same trying to prevent and to punish the practice because it means that the perpetrators will, uh, will be able to acquire impunity through these crimes. And the fourth element is the question of the numbers that uh, are present in Shava's presentation. And the main question is, should we wait until the, until the total destruction is over? What does it mean trying to say that it is not enough people? It's really problematic as an argument from a genocide scholar. So, 10,000 people is not enough to prove the intention of destruction of a group. And so what does it mean, partial destruction of a group, as it is in the convention? With the main idea, even from Lemkin, but not only Lemkin, but the, the, even the, the unconvention, the idea of the partial destruction is precisely trying to understand and to stop the destruction before the destruction is over. So if you need to prove genocide with the total destruction, so okay, so we will have the possibility to, to intervene or to punish or to prevent the genocide when the genocide is over. So it, it would be absolutely uh, meaningless. So that's yeah. my main point is trying to analyze these four points yeah. and um, trying to, to analyze more in specifically any of these points. Right. Um, let me return to Professor uh, uh, Gregory Stenton because uh, you know both of you are uh, uh, social scientifically trained, and Professor uh, Stenton is also, uh, you know, Yale trained law international lawyer, uh, the lawyer and and uh, uh, <clears throat> scholar. Um, but I, I think the the issue that cannot be forget the moral argument. Yeah. That cannot be intellectually and empirically defended is that human deeds are exclusively X or Y or Z, genocide versus crimes against humanity versus the crime of deportation or the you know, murder against humanity. That was the term that was used before the genocide uh, uh, was invented uh, or be, uh, gained um, uh, <clears throat> legal currency. Um, uh, Professor Stenton, you, you are also an anthropologist uh, trained at Chicago. How do you, you know, confront this sort of, you know, exclusionary notion that human intent can only be pure this or pure that from an anthropological in other words, empirical perspective, uh, something that um, uh, Daniel called the social reality. I completely agree with Daniel. Both of us are social scientists, of course. 
and lawyers. Um, and the truth is that human intentionality is complex, as Daniel has said, and it is, uh, there is almost no act in which you only find one intent. Uh, you know, maybe turning on the faucet to get a glass of water. I don't know, but you know what you have with crime is always multiple intents. Um, in fact, Shabbos's uh, view of international law uh, and that genocide can only have one intent, that is a singular intent theory, is not only bad law in international law, it's bad law in domestic law also. Um, if a single intent theory was what we needed to prove, for instance, the crime of murder, you could never prosecute anybody for murder if you could say, oh, well, he, his real intent wasn't, you know, when he picked up that gun and pulled the trigger and actually shot the person in the head. The real purpose was robbery. So we can't really prosecute him for murder. Well, that's nonsense. Of course it's nonsense. And Shabbos, uh, well, he's frankly, he's never been a prosecutor. He's never, uh, frankly, been really a criminal lawyer. Uh, and I think any criminal lawyer will tell you that uh, you'll have multiple intents in any crime. Uh, and not only that, uh, there's a distinction in criminal law between intent and motive. Uh, a person who's a murderer may have other motives in addition to uh, killing the other person, but he also may, you know, be trying to rob the person or, you know, trying to extract vengeance for, you know, some act. So, it's not only bad uh, international law that Shabbos is preaching, it's also bad criminal law. It's just plain wrong criminal law. And um, so that not only is of course true psychologically and anthropologically, any person who looks at intent knows that it's complex, even for an individual. But let's, let's take it even further. Um, a lot of people, are confused about the intentionality necessary to prove genocide. And they often call it mens rea, that is the mental element uh, that is necessary uh, so that you, for instance, cannot convict someone of, let us say, a reckless uh, kind of act. You can't convict them of genocide. The Bhopal um, chemical spill, for example, uh, you know, there was not an intentional act by Union Carbide, even though I think it was a reckless act. In other words, I think they could have been prosecuted maybe for a lower level of crime, uh, manslaughter or something like that, because they did have some inkling at least that that could happen, but then they didn't do anything about it. But that's not intentionality. In other words, recklessness is a lower standard than intent. So then the question is, for an individual, yes, let's look for what kind of intent is necessary for an individual. And in general, uh, to convict a person of genocide, uh, it means that the person commits an act of genocide, killing a member of the group or doing uh, incitement to commit genocide or being complicit in genocide and so forth, um, or aiding and abetting genocide. Uh, the person has to be knowledgeable that he's participating in an overall plan to destroy a group. 
In other words, there has to be that inference to prove the intent for genocide, the mens rea for an individual. But now let's look at state responsibility because individuals have minds. So we can think about mens rea. That's what it means, guilty mind. States don't have minds. States are collectivities. How then can we determine what the intent of a state is? Well, I think we have to look at it very differently than we look at individuals. Um, for a state, I can think of a couple of ways you can look at intent. One would be to say, look at the orders given or the statements made by the leaders of the state. But very often, leaders of a state that are intent on committing genocide don't put their words into such easily findable ways that you can prove that they intended to wipe out another group. Uh, in other words, we don't even have an order from Hitler you know, that he intended the Holocaust. But the second way you can prove intent is to have a systematic widespread pattern of actions that have the foreseeable consequence of destroying a group. In other words, I believe we need that kind of concept of intent for states. Now, the one thing the Bosnia decision did do that was good was it affirmed that states can be responsible for genocide. It's not just individuals. But uh, at the same time, you know, they gave a little, but then they took a lot more away with this foolish idea that the only intent had to be genocide, that it couldn't also be other intentionalities. But my view is that to confuse individual intentionality with the kind of intent that you would need to prove for uh, a state is a big mistake. And we really need to think about how we prove state responsibility. Right. Um, this is to both of you. I think the, you know, here we need to be very clear about uh, uh, the state responsibility and individual um, the criminal responsibility of uh, leaders of the states uh, you know, leaders of the civil society organizations, parliamentarians, because, you know, when we say state as, as uh, scholars and professionals, um, you know, we, we mean to refer to an assemblies, assemblage of uh, organizations, parliaments, you know, like uh, judiciary organs, security sectors, like police and militia, right? Uh, uh, <clears throat> And then often um, the, what I found in, in, in my own country's um, ongoing case of genocide against the Rohingya people is that, you know, state, the genocides are not simply crimes organized and led by the state, but they also uh, often um, <clears throat> supported popularly by uh, civil society organizations, communities, uh, churches, monastic orders, right? Um, the celebrities, uh, the cultural icons, yeah? And then so <clears throat> how, um, how do you make this intellectual transition raising the bar of intent uh, at the ICJ 
where ICJ is not a individual criminally prosecutorial code, uh, whereas in fact ICC, the International Criminal Court, goes after individual, um, you know, uh, <clears throat> leaders and ranking members. As you know, it, it, ICC is essentially a universalized uh, Nuremberg, if you will. Right? There will be in the human individuals sitting in the dock or being pursued by the Interpol. So do you see, um, uh, you know, problematic that um, uh, the one court pursuing individual re criminal responsibility using uh, high standards, um, you know, the intent bar uh, for genocide versus crimes against humanity and that ICJ that does not apportion individual responsibility also is being pushed to uphold those impossibly high standards a bar to prove specific or special intent uh, but both of you daniel okay now i think that it is interesting to have these two different approaches and we could do both in a right way. Unfortunately, both bodies, in my opinion, are doing it bad, but it is not the problem of the division because actually we have a difference between the responsibility of the state, which is the main focus of the ICJ and the responsibility of individuals that, are, that could be part of the state, but as individuals working on the actions. So I think that the main problem in both approaches beyond the geopolitical problems, which are also some important problems, are, are this, this element that both of us are trying to point out, which is trying to understand what intent means in social action. And this idea that even individuals, which is the easy, easier element to analyze has, as, as Greg pointed out, any individual has a lot of intentions in any action. And the element is trying to understand exactly the opposite analysis of what Shabbos did, that if the intent of genocide is present, among these other different elements. So that would be the proof because always we have a lot of intentions uh, as Greg pointed out regarding homicide or any other crime. Of course, you have many different intents in this action, but if genocide is present among them, so that's the only way in it could appear, so that's enough. But regarding states, it is even more difficult because state has not only has no mens rea, no mentality, but have different sectors. And probably the different sectors uh, in the state has different objectives. And usually they're fighting 
one against another. Even in Nazism, the paradigm of genocide, you have different sectors, even uh, among the, the Wehrmacht, or even between one very interesting example is, is Himmler against Goebbels that has a very different view about what, how to, how to develop the extermination of the Jewish population and, and the level of, of paranoia and absolute extremism in Goebbels was totally different than the Himmler's idea. Even if Himmler was one of the main organizers of genocide, Himmler was uh, prepared to exchange one million Jews in the frontier with Switzerland in the exchange with some trucks by the US if they were accepted, because the idea was that even the extermination of the Jews was less important in comparison with other objectives, so other intents. And it doesn't mean that the German state has no intention to exterminate the Jews because they have other intents too. So I think that it is quite important to understand this element in these different views. And uh, the problem is, is how to manage this complex and social understanding of intent in both different situations. So how to analyze the intent in the state, which is clearly as you mentioned, the idea of the development of a clear pattern of actions. So that's what you have. The, the authorization of the state or, or the possibility to see that there is a clear pattern of action, even with all of the contradictions that the state usually have. And at the level of the individual, what you have is genocide as one of the possible intent present in the action among many others. I think that's the only way in which we can apply the concept. Otherwise, it will be just a game in which uh, uh, no one will be possible to be accused of genocide in any situation because you are this interpretation, this Shabbos interpretation, and other legal scholars too are dealing with some imaginary way in which the, the actions happen that, that is not possible in any real historical action. So yes. we would okay. have a concept that couldn't be applied in any historical case in the past, in the present, or even in the future, because that's not the way in which intent works. Yeah, in yeah. fact, okay. I believe that yeah, to adopt Shabbos's position and the position of the Bosnia and the Croatia courts would effectively destroy the Genocide Convention. Yeah, just just a bit of the 30 seconds from my part. Uh, you know, like we only have to look at the uh, detailed uh, and verbatim transcripts uh, provided by the U.S. Army psychologist uh, who was allowed in um, at the at the Nuremberg uh, interviewing, or basically his job was uh, to look after the mental health of all the uh, high-ranking, uh, you know, the, um, uh, the, the Nazi uh, officials, including Hermann Goring and, and others. 
And uh, it became clear that uh, Goring, uh, one of the top, very, very top Nazi leaders, very close to Hitler, um, that, the, you know, anti-Semitism and extermination of the Jews uh, rank lower uh, in his list of intentions and priorities. And he was trying to protect, you know, some of the um, uh, close Jewish uh, deputies of his. You know, this is like unthinkable if we uh, assume that falsely there was a, un a uniformity of intentionality, you know, behind or, or, uh, the, the actions of highest ranking uh, leaders of Nazis at Nuremberg. Yeah. And this this was like, you know, I mean, like, you know, the, the, the Jean Paul Sartre, you know, took issue with the idea of like, you know, understanding this, establishing this uh, mental element, you know, I mean, you have to plunge into the mental world of these perpetrators. And here was a U.S. Army psychologist who had an extremely rare and historic opportunity to converse with these men, you know, at Nuremberg on a, you know, regular basis throughout the trials. And, and his research coughed up non-uniformity of intentionality among the architects of the, the, uh, the, the Third Reich. And so can I invite uh, Greg um, to, to comment uh, further on, on Shabazz's uh, strategy to pit ICJ and ICC because ICC had, in his words, opened full investigation with the purpose of uh, you know, looking into the crime of deportation. Therefore, the, you know, ICJ has no business, you know, uh, the getting involved with this, you know, in his view, nonsensical, uh, you know, uh, the genocide allegations brought, um, you know, by the state of Gambia. Yeah, I think you do need to look at it from Chavez's point of view as a defense lawyer. What he's trying to do is get his uh, client off. He's trying to get them, you know, found not to have violated the genocide convention. Um, and he's saying, look, uh, the ICC does have jurisdiction here because they have jurisdiction not only against genocide and also against uh, crimes against humanity and war crimes. Um, and the Geneva Conventions, for example, have no compromissory clause in them that grant jurisdiction to the International Court of Justice to hear um, complaints or allegations against states, because the ICJ is a state versus state court. It is not a court where you can try individuals. So what Chavez is doing is saying, look, uh, these crimes may have been committed, yes, by individuals, but actually, uh, the crime of deportation is a crime against humanity. That's where it should be tried. It should be in the ICC, in the International Criminal Court. Uh, the, um, the result, in fact, is more or less the same as the result that came after Bosnia and after Croatia, the decisions by the ICJ that genocide didn't apply to Serbia, because there, the individuals who participated in the genocide in Bosnia and in Croatia could be tried in 
special courts that have been set up, the ICTY uh, in one case, and it, those trials in fact continue in, in other special courts that have continued on after the ICTY. So what we've got here is a one of those legal uh, vacuums, if you will, that has been created by lawyers, frankly, <laughs> uh, and it's partly created to um, protect states. Um, genocide is one crime that does have a compromissory clause that gives the International Court of Justice jurisdiction to uh, uh, consider um, disputes over whether it has been violated or not as a convention, as a treaty. So that's why this case is in front of the ICJ. Uh, but here is the rub. Uh, Myanmar is not a state party to the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. And under the jurisdictional clauses of the Rome Statute, the only crimes that can be tried in the ICC are crimes against individuals that are crimes committed by individuals uh, that are citizens of uh, states that are state parties to the International Criminal Court or that are committed on the territory of a state that is a party of the ICC. The uh, exception is if the UN Security Council refers a case to the ICC as it did, for instance, for Darfur, as it did uh, for Libya. But in other words, the ICC has quite limited jurisdiction because it uh, rests on acceptance by a state of uh, the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. And since Myanmar is not a party, you can't try them for genocide. You can't try the individuals even for genocide in the uh, ICC. The reason that the ICC can try people for forced deportation is Bangladesh is a party to the uh, statute of the International Criminal Court. And therefore that crime, uh, which has continued onward into Bangladesh can therefore be tried in the ICC. Uh, so that's, you know, it's one of these awful situations where we have a legal vacuum that is not yet filled, where we don't have a way to try the people and the state for that matter, uh, that has been, uh, has violated the Genocide Convention. Yeah, I, th I think the, you know, we, we will uh, stay on uh, <clears throat> on this issue of intentionality and Shabazz's strategy, sure. and then we'll move on to the, uh, the more, um, you know, uh, universal or general uh, conceptual issues uh, related to uh, <clears throat> the role of genocide uh, intent, uh, you know, specific versus general. Um, <clears throat> you know, Shabazz was uh, basically very confident or confidently arguing that Myanmar case would not even get to the merit stage. Uh, yeah, and of course, uh, he was proven wrong by the unanimous decision uh, in uh, actually uh, um, um, a year ago last week in um, in the Hague when the ICC uh, sorry ICJ judges including Myanmar's uh, handpicked ad hoc judge altogether 17 ICJ judges 
um, issued um, provisional measures, you know, because uh, clearly uh, the Gambia team presented, um, you know, uh, 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 the case that went above and beyond reasonable doubt that this case has a very high plausibility of, you know, uh, being able to be proven to be a genocide, right? Um, can, can you comment on this um, <clears throat> uh, plausibility and merit um, elements or phases of the case, uh, just for uh, the understanding of those of us who are not legally trained? Sure. Do you mind if I go ahead with that one? Uh, Daniel? Yeah. yeah, go ahead. You know, one of the reasons this is important is because the ICJ is not bound by its previous decisions. That's one important point to make here. Uh, every case is a sort of de novo. It's, it's considered individually. But nevertheless, the ICJ, like all other courts, is very reluctant to overrule its past decisions as it has, uh, it has these two decisions, Bosnia and Croatia, and unfortunately, uh, they do not help. So then the question for a lawyer is, how can we distinguish the facts in those cases from the facts for uh, the case of Myanmar and the genocide against the Rohingya? Well, I think there's some very strong distinctions in the facts, and that's why even if the ICJ refuses to overrule its previous decisions in Bosnia and Croatia, it can still find that Myanmar did commit genocide. Uh, first of all, uh, it had this case in uh, Myanmar followed on decades of ethnic and religious discrimination against the Rohingya. Uh, that was not the case in either Bosnia or Croatia, where it really only started up a few years before the, before the genocides in 1992 or so. This is decades long discrimination. Secondly, you have a major campaign of hate speech that was uh, largely published by, by Facebook, which created a culture of genocide in Myanmar. And that also was a different characteristic than the Croatia case or the Bosnia case. There was hate speech in both Bosnia and Croatia, but it was not the pervasive creation of a culture of hatred that you had with Myanmar. Um, the second, the, another case, that, another difference in this case is that Myanmar's genocide against the Rohingya was perpetrated directly by the Myanmar army. In both Bosnia and Croatia, Serb militias committed the crimes, not the Serbian regular army. And so that is, I think, an important distinction, actually, because here we have, uh, we're saying the state of Myanmar is responsible for this genocide. I think it's a very strong case because it was actually the army that committed the genocide and also the forced deportation. And then, uh, in Croatia and in Bosnia, the destruction uh, was considerably less than it was uh, with the Rohingya. In, uh, in the case of the Rohingya, you certainly have a violation of Articles 2B and C of the Genocide Convention, creating conditions of life, 
deliberately imposed to destroy a group. In this case, Myanmar destroyed 434 Rohingya villages, over half of the villages, and destroyed all of the Rohingya's food sources. Now, if that isn't genocide, I don't know what is. So I think we have a much stronger case based on the facts. And the other thing that is a distinction here is because the UN independent uh, fact-finding mission on Myanmar published such a definitive report based on extremely well done research and interviewing of witnesses and so forth, a 444 page report full of facts. The ICJ has a mountain of evidence in front of it of the overall widespread and systematic nature of the attempt by Myanmar to destroy the Rohingya group. Right. Yeah, I think I think as uh, Daniel, um, uh, 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 he's on a, a different call, he will return um, um, <clears throat> to our conversation. I think, you know, as Daniel uh, rightly noted, uh, um, William Shabazz's um, Myanmar's council attacked um, Professor Young Hee Lee, uh, the uh, special rapporteur on the human rights situation in Myanmar, uh, for her lack of what he considered, uh, you know, essentially her deficiency. Uh, as, uh, you know, he didn't put it that way. Basically, she's a developmental psychologist, uh, a professor of education. Therefore, she cannot understand uh, the, uh, the the genocide, right? But but the the fact finding mission report, you know, um, Daniel dealt with the issue, so I won't go into it, or I'll ask your opinion on it. Uh, it's quite rather uh, you know a frivolous and uh, uh, petty argument to make, right? Um, but the the the, the fact finding mission, you know, is uh, released in uh, um, in September of uh, 2018. I, I was in Geneva when it was released, uh, and um, <clears throat> The, you know, the three lead commissioners on that commission, they were, uh, you know, uh, the, the very reputable national human rights commissioners and lawyers. And, you know, a former attorney general, uh, Mazuki was the chair, uh, <clears throat> and then Radhika uh, from uh, Sri Lanka. She, you know, she is a Yale and Harvard trained uh, legal scholar and practitioner. You cannot get any um, you know, better training than that. And so Shabazz could not simply, or any Myanmar legal defense should not simply <clears throat> write off the merits of, uh, contained there in, in that report, right? And and I think the, the, uh, the, the what you mentioned, you know, the destruction of nearly 400 villages, it is just, uh, you know, within a span of, you know, weeks, right? And then you mentioned about the decades of, uh, you know, targeted discrimination, singling out this particular uh, protected group named uh, Rohingya, right? What, I, what one issue that I want to uh, bring up here is the, uh, uh, <clears throat> the, in, the intention and acts. Yeah, uh, I, you know, coming from a different uh, cultural, epistemological uh, background, right? Uh, as, as, as someone who, who was raised in a Buddhist epistemological tradition, I, th I find the Genocide Convention somewhat crude in that um, it did not go uh, enough to differentiate human actions at uh, you know, mental, 
verbal and physical level. Yeah. So the, from the Buddhist paradigm, you know, a person is committing him or herself to an act at three different levels. We conceive of what we wish to do, desire, uh, the, the intention. And then we articulate it to our family, to our friends. And that if we are in a position to influence public opinions to the public uh, in, in our country, and then we execute the intended and articulated um, uh, plan of action, right? And then so when you said that, you know, Facebook was crucial or Facebook allowed itself to be used as a mobilizing tool to shape the public opinion, to create this culture of uh, hatred, right? So that uh, we, you know, I, I think that is actually the state and, uh, you know, public opinion makers priming, priming the public opinion, conducive and, and supportive of what the state was planning to do, which was the final genocidal assault. Yeah. Because uh, mind you, as you know very well, the attacks on the, um, the Rohingya population, right? Uh, for no other reason than that they are Rohingya and they exist in that particular ancestral region of Burma, have been going on for 40 years and different and chronic waves. And finally, as you know, uh, Raphael Lumpkin picked up on what the Nazi leaders, you know, like a no, uh, you know, lower than fee Marshal Ronstadt, who said, um, you know, like organized underfeeding of this unwanted Jewish population is better than machine guns. You see what I mean? So if you look at the, you know, not just the, uh, uh, the, the fact-finding mission report, World Food Program survey of nutritional provision or, you know, withholding of access to nutritional access uh, to, you know, crops and whatnot. We have in North Arakan or Western Myanmar, sub-Saharan type, you know, semi-famine, you know, severe nutritional, uh, uh, you know, deficiency among the Rohingya, not the Buddhist population. This is an, this has been an intended policy and intended impact. Can you comment on this uh, slowness of the, or the process oriented um, uh, aspect of genocide? You know, vis-a-vis, uh, you know, like Rwanda-like or Auschwitz-like uh, mass killings um, at a lightning speed. Yeah, that's a, I'm very interested in that uh, comment. Uh, it's a good example of why we need to be, we need to have diversity in our uh, ways of looking at the world, because I believe that that concept uh, of intentionality that you have just enunciated, it's a three-stage, not just a two-stage way of looking at things, not just a so-called mental and, you know, physical or act stage, but there's also this articulation stage, this vocal stage. Uh, there is, of course, within the genocide convention, um, a provision for that. 
its uh, part, it is a crime of genocide to incite people to commit genocide. And that is a vocal stage, exactly what you're saying. Uh, but I really love the fact that the entire sort of Buddhist uh, way of looking at intentionality is much is more complex than our Western way of looking at it. And I affirm that. Uh, the uh, other thing that you mentioned, uh, this slow acting kind of genocide in which you starve people to death is very, very, very common among people, among uh, states especially, but uh, groups that want to commit genocide against another. Uh, that was what was done against the Armenians during the Armenian genocide. They would starve them. They would, you know, march them out into the desert until they starved to death. Uh, it was true of the Hereros under Vantrata down in uh, Southwest Africa, uh, now Namibia. Uh, he ordered his troops. And by the way, there you had an actual order. He said, kill them all. Uh, you don't get that very often. But anyway, he said the way to do this is to, you know, cut them off from all water and food, drive them out into the Kalahari Desert. And of course, that was the objective. They wanted to wipe them all out, kill them all. Um, in the case of Sudan, you had the same thing with the uh, Darfuris. They were literally driven out of their villages. Their villages were uh, destroyed. They tried to kill all the men and, men and boys they could. They tried to rape all the women. Uh, this was a case where it was a, it, what had been a gradual genocide turned into a very intensive one in 2003 and four, and it is continuing. A lot of people think it's over. It is not over. Um, so these long-term starvations that regimes uh, carry out against other groups are genocide specifically under Article 2C of the Genocide Convention, which prohibits creating conditions of life calculated to destroy the group. And that is what you're talking about. And the right. I mean, victims. Sorry, um, you know, the uh, often, uh, you know, like in, in, in all other crimes, uh, perpetrators are uh, human individuals in positions of authority. Um, they, they tend to leave a uh, you know, the, the DNA of their crime, which was like, you know, in, in the case of 1971, you know, vicious, um, you know, uh, war uh, by West Pakistan against uh, East Pakistan, today uh, Bangladesh, you know, the commanding, uh, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> the commander in chief of the West Pakistani army, uh, General Khan issued this chilling warning. You know, he didn't say, go and exterminate the Bengali speaking population. He said, I want the land, not, not the people, you see? But you mean, if you're a stickler, you say, well, no, he didn't, he didn't tell his troops or he didn't order his troops to, to exterminate Bengali, you know, however many millions. He just said he wanted the land, you see what I mean? So mm -hmm. that you know, we could have a, we could spend years splitting legal hair here. Um, but in the case of Burma, you know, it, it's not, I mean, you, you pointed out very specifically that, it, you know, unlike other clay cases, the Burmese state did not outsource the genocidal purge to any other entity. It may have primed uh, the society culturally, psychologically, um, you know, using the monks and other opinion leaders 
uh, even including Aung San Suu Kyi, and um, uh, the, the, they mobilized, you know, infantry divisions. They mobilized, uh, you know, um, uh, the attack helicopter uh, squadrons. They, they mobilized uh, naval vessels, right? Because uh, Arakan State is reachable by um, both, uh, you know, land and by riverine routes. And so the, the commander in chief, number one soldier, senior general may online, you know, in the middle of like all the genocidal killings in 19, sorry, 2017, when we were having this, uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, the People's Tribunal at, uh, where you testify as the expert witness on genocide at uh, in Kuala Lumpur. He, he, you know, he gave a speech to the entire armed forces of half a million uh, soldiers. Yeah, basically we are completing the unfinished business. Yeah, so so this is the equivalent of General Yahya Khan saying, "I want the land, not the people." You know, he didn't say, "Well, troops that go and rape every Rohingya woman or burn down four hundred villages." He said, "Well, we are finishing this unfinished business left over from the World War II, where the uh, the Rohingyas um, were known to be." Um, you know, sympathetic to the British and the uh, the local Rakhines and the Buddhist uh, Burmese and the whole country uh, welcomed the fascist Japanese in. And so there, there were so many, you know, uh, inferences or verbal evidences uh, that could be used to establish that this was indeed the intention, not simply, uh, you know, the crime of deportation. Um, the, the, um, can you care to comment on the, your perspective on um, on the Burmese case? You you have been one of the leading uh, spokes, uh, you know, outspoken critics of the Burmese policies, and and before you know, most scholars, um, you know, um, the, utter the word the Rohingya or knew where Rohingya was or where you you were leading this fight intellectually uh, as the founding um, um, president of Genocide Watch. And then I got, you know, I'll bring um, Daniel back in after uh, Professor Stanton's uh, comment on, on specifically on the uh, Rohingya genocide. Yeah, I also wanted to just point out that uh, Daniel was the president of the uh, Permanent People's Tribunal hearing on the Rohingya genocide in Kuala Lumpur. Uh, so we're long in this uh, fight together. Um, and frankly, Mong Sarni, you, been the leader. So we follow you. Um, you know, the, the, the thing about these gradual genocides is that they are part of a process. That's why Genocide Watch uses a process model of how genocide develops. It's, genocide is not an event. It is a process. And you can see it coming if you know what the ingredients are, the processes that lead up to the actual extermination. And that's why we use our 10 stages of genocide model. They really should be called 10 processes of genocide uh, because they're not linear and uh, they don't always occur at the same, you know, in order or anything, they can be simultaneous. But our basic point is, if you look at the process, it was very clearly coming. Uh, the Urohinja were classified, that's the first stage. Uh, I, they took away their citizenship. 
that was a declassification of the Rohingya. The second thing was the symbols that were used. They took away their ID cards as, as uh, citizens of, uh, of what was then Burma and then became Myanmar. They then discriminated against them totally. No health care, you know, couldn't hold any government jobs, couldn't get adequate food and so forth. And then fourthly, they had this dehumanization campaign, kept calling them, you know, all kinds of animal names and uh, insects and a cancer and all this terrorists. Um, you then had the organization that was necessary. You had, of course, not only the Myanmar army, uh, which is very well organized, but you also had uh, Rakhine militias that were participated in the genocide itself. Uh, you had then the next stage, which is polarization, in which the idea was to uh, totally polarize uh, Myanmar society. So that, and by the way, this is an important thing to remember about genocide. It can be supported publicly by a majority of the population. That it was the case in this one in Myanmar, where a huge portion of the population uh, supports this genocide, and that was the case in Germany too. Uh, so we have, you know, don't get the idea that genocide is inflicted by some tiny minority. It is often by the majority. And then we finally had preparation, of course. Uh, the Myanmar army moved into Rakhine province a good month before August of 2017. I mean, that was a sure sign that they were planning this genocide. And they were there. And so this, this uh, excuse that, oh, a small group of uh, Rohingyas attacked a, couple, a few police posts, that this, this actually was just a response to these, quote, terrorists, unquote, is absolute nonsense. It's a lie. It is a red herring drawn across the path so people won't see the reality. And what actually was happening is it was a well-planned genocide. And then, of course, you had the persecution of the Rohingya, which had occurred over many, many years. Uh, they even had concentration camps in Sitwe and elsewhere where they literally herded a well over 100,000 Rohingya in 2012. Uh, finally, we had, of course, the mass killing, at least 30,000 Rohingya killed in 2017, 700,000 who had to flee for their lives into Bangladesh. That, by the way, is another distinction from the Croatia and Bosnia cases. Uh, this was massive, 700,000 people. And that was after another 200 or 300,000 had already fled. We have a million Rohingya who are now in Bangladesh. Uh, and of course, we have all the way through it, it begins at the beginning and it is still going on, the denial. Denial is the final stage. Actually, it's also the first stage. It comes at the beginning. They deny they're going to do it. And in fact, they try to hide it. That's what the statements you were saying uh, by Yahya Khan and uh, by others who said, oh, we just want the land. Well, that was Hitler's argument too. Lebensraum. We need that land. You know, so this idea that somehow you can hide your uh, intentions behind a euphemism like ethnic cleansing, uh, it's, yeah. to, I to, just, to, 
call on Daniel because actually Daniel is has brought this whole idea of how this process uh, develops and how this whole uh, what I would call the cultural aspect of genocide uh, is so crucial to it. Well, I, th I think like, you know, gen genocides, um, when um, Lemkin, um, the father of the genocide as a concept uh, and, and, and later law, when he conceived of it, it was obviously a pre-legal concept, you know, rooted in his sociological and anthropological understanding of, uh, you know, um, uh, what became protected groups, uh, minor national minorities, where be they Armenians or uh, the Jews of Europe. And also, you know, before I bring um, uh, Daniel in on, on this issue, um, I don't know if, um, you know, many people are aware. I think, you know, the, um, there, were, there were about 20 years that lapsed before Hitler built his first concentration camp out of uh, Dachau in Munich. You know, the, the deposed uh, German empire, Kaiser Wilhelm II. He was like, you know, he was framing or dehumanizing the German Jews as mushrooms that grew on the beautiful German oak tree. In other words, parasites, right? This was 1918, 1990. And he, he even specifically suggested the best way forward in terms of erasing this mushroom population from German soil. You know, German um, um, Kaiser William uh, in his exile wrote to one of his field marshals that the best way to do it would be guessing them all in 1920, yeah, in writing, right? And then, so the, the, um, you know, the twenty years before the um, the, the Dachau was um, established, out of this paper mill in uh, outside of Munich, and then so you know, the genocides are not, obviously uh, not crimes of uh, passion. Uh, you know, it takes decades in terms of preparation. Daniel, can you comment on how you can? Uh, you know, relate this sociological understanding of genocide as a process in, in a situation where, uh, uh, you know, judicial thinking dominates, you know, and, and that we agree on this process-oriented understanding of genocide, but the courts, you know, seem to be so straight-jacketed conceptually and intellectually how, how do we make this process understanding legally valuable for those who want to press charges against different states? I'm sure like, you know, Rohingyas are the not, not the last victim. Um, you know, whatever we think of uh, Pompeo, we also know that um, China is in a very, very, uh, you know, early stage of a genocide against uh, Uyghurs, right? And so this is this bad, but this argument is going to come up again. Yeah, I think that Greg went to a very fundamental point, which is to understand that genocide is a process. It's a social practice and it is a process. It is not an event. So this process has different stages that are non-linear, as Greg pointed out. And we can, we could uh, define different stages, Greg, made his own, I have other six stages, but it is, 
it is somehow similar trying to understand that we have different actions and these different patterns of action are being intertwined in a whole system of action, which is actually genocide. So the problem is that the, the law as a discipline is trying to understand social actions in order to produce responsibility and consequence for this action to the people who decided to participate in these actions. In general, always law has to deal with different social actions. The problem is that some social actions are easier to understand than others even if they are social actions too. So even robbery or a homicide or murder, all of them are social actions, but they are, they are more clear because they are simpler. So in genocide, you have a social action, very complex. And the interesting part, in my opinion, the more interesting part, the better part of the UN Genocide Convention is the inclusion of the five clauses of the Article 2, which is five actions that in that moment, the idea is that the law should intervene. But in genocide, we have much more elements and actions than the five clauses. But as they are preparatory actions and they are much more difficult to follow, I think it is a very well documented, a great element to define, okay, from all of the actions you could have in a process of genocide, and some of them were described by Greg, the polarization, the stigmatization, different ways in which genocides start to work in different ways. Okay, so that's for anthropology, that's for sociology, that's for education, trying to confront in different ways with the genocidal actions. But in the moment in which one or more of the five actions that are on the clauses appear, okay, that's the moment of the law. So when we think in that way, it's quite clear the situation of Myanmar, because you can see that some or many of these actions are present beyond other kinds of actions that were present for decades in which the way of, of discrimination, of polarization, classification, dehumanization. But then you have killing people. Okay, that's one of the actions that are present in the clauses of the convention. And you are submitting people to conditions that have the possibility to produce their destruction. Okay, clause to C. It's present in the convention. You have producing physical and mental harm for members of the group. So, and, and you're acting also in the possibility to, to, to create some problems in the, in the uh, 
Oh, I, I don't find the English word for, for the, Spanish the belts, for the belts yeah. <laughs> of the members of the group. So close to D. So I think that's that's the the really interesting element because regarding the question of the groups included is uh, I think the weak part of the convention, all the discussion in which the states decided finally to include only four groups, even if in the first vote, which is not usually uh, included in all the courses on international criminal law, that the first vote in the United Nations, October uh, 25th, 1948, the states decided to include the political groups in the Article 2 of the Convention for a majority of 29 votes. And then one month later, the assembly decided, and I think it's the only case in the general assembly that decided to do a second vote on the same thing that was decided. And with 12 members out of the room, very late at the night, they decided to change the decision of the assembly with 22 votes when the inclusion was voted with 29 votes. So even we could say that it is not legitimate, this votation, but anyway, that's a problematic part. But the really strong element of the convention is these five actions, these five clauses. That means that genocide is a very complex process that many actions are included and the law has a specific, uh, a specific interest in these five actions because in that moment genocide is going to the point of extermination. So when you have these five clauses, you, the, the whole process is ready. It's, it's is being produced for years, but now is the moment in which it's ongoing, it is happening. The, the worst part of the genocide social process is happening. So I think that's fundamental to redirect our legal thinking on genocide. That's trying to understand that the law is coming to the field and working with other disciplines to understand, okay, is a very complex action, is a very complex process. We need different elements to confront, to prevent, even to punish. And now we have the law entering the scene when one of the five actions are present. And I think that's very, very clear in many historical cases why the law should enter the scene. And particularly in the case of Myanmar, which we can find almost the five elements present, at least four of them present in the action when you need just one to enter the law into the scene. Yeah, now, now on to the uh, extra legal, uh, the factors, you know, I mean, like the way you describe it, and as many of us understand, the genocide convention itself, you know, that, um, you know, germinated from 1946 General Assembly resolution, where genocide was uh, first ever uh, mentioned uh, specifically in a General Assembly resolution as a denial of the right to exist, right? So as we moved into the 
you know, professional legalistic discourses, we begin to lose sight of the original purpose, right? And uh, um, uh, the, 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 the intellectual conceptual essence of why genocide was coined in the first place by Raphael Lumpkin, right? So the, you know, to, to, to go to 1946 resolution, it was like, yeah, genocide was uh, basically uh, any acts and processes that were designed to deny the right to exist as a population, right? I mean, for, you know, like uh, the, we, I mean, like five acts, you know, there's an English saying, there are a million ways, there are different ways to skin a cat. You know, you can start from the head, you can start from the, you know, the tummy, you can start from the tail, the paws, right? Or start gorge out the eyes, whatever. But um, can I ask uh, uh, <clears throat> Professor Stanton, um, if the um, um, Genocide Convention as, um, you know, as it exists today itself is obviously the product of geopolitical and ideological horse trading between the uh, top, uh, you know, victorious um, uh, <clears throat> states uh, right after the, the Holocaust and the Second World War. The, it, it appears that the application of the convention itself um, has been a geopolitically motivated because as the, um, you know, the leading um, the, a, a practitioner against genocide as the founder of the uh, Genocide Watch. Uh, and, you know, you've argued that there are about, you know, three or four dozen cases that should qualify, uh, to, you know, to be argued um, at, at various international judicial mechanisms. And yet, um, you know, the case law is less than five. ICTY, the former Yugoslavia, ICTR, Rwanda, and then the Kamaruch Tribunal, which you helped set up, ECCC. And so, you know, that's why I think like yeah, you were frustrated and you said in uh, Kuala Lumpur, you know, by the time the court arrives, all victims are dead. Yeah. Can you care to comment on this like, rather abysmal application of this genocide convention? You're so right, I'm afraid. Uh, I'm so sorry, I sound entirely too pessimistic. Um, I think it's maybe reading Reinhold Niebuhr, <laughs> uh, who is not exactly an optimist about human nature, as you know. Um, but I do think that the basic institutions we need to prevent genocide don't yet exist. Um, the UN was supposedly set up to, you know, prevent war. And yet we've had a multitude of wars since it was set up. Uh, and it's true, as you say, that um, if a war is supported by one of the great powers, one of the Perm Five in particular, the you know permanent members of the Security Council, the UN really can't do anything about it. Um, and, you know, so when America decides it's just going to, you know, get together a coalition and invade Iraq, it just does it. Uh, or Guyana or wherever. Uh, and same for Russia or the Soviet Union as it used to be, or China. I mean, these are countries that are essentially immune from you know, being uh, prosecuted or from uh, being stopped when they are planning a genocide. And get 
uh, make it very clear. I think that the U.S. is complicit in the genocide going on in Yemen right now, and that uh, Secretary Pompeo and a number of the people who are in our government should be prosecuted for that complicity. I believe that the universal jurisdiction of uh, the United States courts ought to be exercised. We actually have a law that makes it uh, a, a crime in the United States to uh, commit genocide uh, against anybody. It's universal jurisdiction. And I will say one thing also in praise of uh, Daniel and Argentina. Argentina has had the wisdom to include political groups in its law against genocide. It didn't drop political groups. And the deal that he was describing that was made to reverse the vote, the first vote on what would be included in the convention, it was a deal made between the UK and the US and, and the Soviet Union to say, hey, wait a minute, we aren't going to have that in there because if we have that in there, my God, we will be guilty. You know, they'll prosecute us. Uh, and they were right, they would. But in addition to that, of course, what they did is they took out uh, cultural groups, economic groups. These were groups that were intended by Lemkin to be included in the convention. Um, I have a special uh, interest in those groups because uh, as Daniel has outlined, the process often starts with cultural genocide. Uh, and so my view is at least that that should be part of the convention. And in a way it is uh, only though by sort of in imaginative interpretation of the law, which by the way, I have to really commend Daniel for bringing articles 2B and 2C back into our understanding of the convention. Already though, we're beginning to realize just how important all the other articles are in the condemnation of China for its genocide against the Uyghurs, uh, especially they're focusing in on prevention of births within the group and uh, taking children away from the group, which is article, of course, 2D and E. Uh, he's right, that's where, that's the heart of the convention. Um, but I would just comment and let me just read you Lemkin's original definition of genocide because I, at Genocide Watch, we uh, accept the fact that the law against genocide is defined by the Genocide Convention. And actually we would like it to include uh, more than that. But nevertheless, that's what we see as the law. But the concept of genocide is broader than that. And Lemkin's concept is this, and I'm gonna read it. Generally speaking, genocide does not necessarily mean the immediate destruction of a nation except when accompanied by mass killings of all members of a nation. It is intended rather to signify a coordinated plan of different actions aiming at the destruction of essential foundations of the life of national groups with the aim of annihilating the groups themselves. The objectives of such a plan would be the disintegration of the political and social institutions of culture, language, national feelings, religion, and the economic existence of national groups and the destruction of the personal security, liberty, health, dignity, and even the lives of the individuals belonging to such groups. So when at Genocide Watch, we actually live by that broader definition. Daniel? 
Yeah, I think that there is some, I would say three different elements to take in account regarding this subject. First is the geopolitical element and Greg told us about that, that uh, of course, if you have a convention that depends on the superpowers of the world, and that's the problem when we have no division between the judicial power and the political power in the international arena. Well, this is no, not accepted in the, in the local or national level. And that's the main problem that the, the judicial, the international law should be independent and autonomous from the political powers. So that's one element which is clearly geopolitical. The second element is that we have a very general confusion about the possibility to judge and prosecute the, the responsibility in genocide and crimes against humanity and generally in, in state human rights violations. Because usually the idea that is that the, the people who are being prosecuted are the, the, weaker, the weakest people that you have to be very strict trying to defend them because all the strength of, of the state is against the prosecuted. But in the case of the state crimes, you have the opposite situation that, that was very difficult to understand from many, many legal scholars trying to understand that the main way in which the legal scholars imagine the juridical process is not applied to state crimes because in this case you have the strongest person is the person who is being prosecuted and it's a very strange and difficult possibility trying to prosecute a person who is responsible of state crimes. So in this way, the importance of the elements should vary because it is the whole scenario is different. And this is a very common confusion that it is a problem to prosecute people from any kind of state crimes, trying to understand that usually the person who is at risk is the prosecutor. But in genocide, the person who is at risk usually is the survivor, the witness, even the prosecutor sometimes the plaintiff and they are at risk because they are trying to punish the most powerful people in the country or the most powerful people in the world. So the process should change because the main element of understanding of the juridical process is different here. It's absolutely false that the weak people is the prosecutor. In this case, is exactly the opposite. So I think that's the second element to take in account why it is so important trying to understand the, the ways in which we should change even the, the process, the way in which we develop the process. And the third element I'd like to point out is that the, the most interesting situation, the situations didn't happen in the international courts, but on national courts. 
And why? Because in national calls, there were more possibilities due to the different changes in any situation to be able to open the floor for the prosecution of some responsible, some, some perpetrators of genocide. And I think one of the, the great developments in international law has been the universal jurisdiction. But this idea of universal jurisdiction, not only and mainly for international tribunals that have been really flaw, have been really problematic. They have punished 50, 60 people in any genocide in the international ad hoc tribunals and less than five people in the international criminal court in 20 years. So it is senseless, but in national courts, we can see more possibilities just taking in account the case of Argentina in which we have punished more than 1,000 perpetrators of the Argentine genocide in which the magnitude of the genocide is clearly uh, little, is clearly smaller than other genocides all over the world and anyway, and we can see this kind of work also in Chile and we can see this in Bangladesh and we can see this possibility in some different countries, some courts in Colombia, some courts even in Mexico with the possibility to deal with different cases. So I think that we should strengthen the possibility of more national tribunals through this possibility of universal jurisdiction because it is more possible to deal with some, some, at least some possibility to prosecute and punish the perpetrators of genocide through the national jurisdiction. So I think these three elements should be taken in account. So this idea of the general confusion, the geopolitical problems and the national versus international level trying to move on with the possibility to include state crimes as a way to, to investigate them, to prosecute them, and even punish the perpetrators. Let me endorse uh, what uh, Daniel has just said, because I think that our next job, our next goal for the anti-genocide movement should be to try to get every state that we can to make genocide a crime of universal jurisdiction. Uh, he's right. I think it is in the national courts that we're going to have the most likelihood of actually prosecuting people who commit genocide. Uh, you know, it's very expensive. It's not going to prosecute many people, as he has already pointed out, to use international courts. Uh, national courts are where we need to really go now. So thank you. And by the way, Daniel himself has been very active uh, in uh, making that happen in Argentina. Well, Myanmar has opened a case in Argentina due to the universal jurisdiction. Yes. Well, yes. That, that we can say, okay, but a, a country like Argentina won't have the possibility to really uh, punish a responsible in Myanmar. But this is interesting because what happened with the Argentine case, opening cases in all Europe and other countries, is not the idea to send the perpetrators to jail, but just to problematize 
just to make their life more difficult with this possibility to have an Interpol around, just to make clear that they are responsible, even if it is not possible to send them to jail is a very, very important element in this process of justice. As genocide is a process, justice is also a process. It's not just an event, it's a process in which we can take different kinds of actions trying to create more and more justice in, in any case. If, if uh, both of you would indulge me, um, the, uh, we, you know, we can extend it for another 10-15 minutes uh, the, the, because I want to get to um, uh, uh, one larger issue that we have not touched on, uh, you know, you know, uh, Professor Stanton said, um, you know, we didn't have the basic, we don't have the basic institutions that can prevent and enforce the um, prevention of genocide around the world, right? Uh, <clears throat> despite this instrument, ICJ uh, often uh, comes up with the argument that its rulings cannot be enforced. You know, we've got this Andrew Jackson and U.S. Supreme Court scenario in the 1860s, right? Well, like, you know, the judges have, a, you know, issued their order, now enforce it, right? And then so the powerful states, as, as Daniel said, you know, the, the weak and the vulnerable communities uh, cannot go after them. It, you know, it, it, it's almost, um, you know, insanity. But, but I think, you know, I, I want to make a, one or, or two brief comments and draw uh, <clears throat> your opinions out from both of you. Um, you know, we have, what we have is not an international system. We have an interstate system. Yeah. We have a system that represents a state interest and state uh, val values, whatever those are, not peoples. We do not have a law of people. We do not have a institutions of people. We have institutions that represent uh, states, you know, whether it's Human Rights Council or like a UN Security Council or General Assembly. That's why we today find ourselves in an extremely ridiculous and indefensible situation intellectually and morally where China sits on the UN uh, Human Rights Council and then the United States poo-pooed the Human Rights Council and left it to rot. And then we've got Cuba, Venezuela, you know, you know, others, other, uh, you know, Philippines, right? And, and that's one thing. The other one is that you know, the, the, the people, or we the people around the world, I mean, that is a, a, the preamble of the uh, <clears throat> U.S. Constitution, as well as the, uh, you know, San Francisco produced uh, U.N. Um, uh, preamble, right? We the people, these institutions of states and interstates organizations pay lift service to the well-being, safety, and security of we the people, and then they go on to proceed to commit all kinds of crimes, either in the law book or not yet uh, named there, yeah? And, and then the other one is the, I think we seem to be playing catch up with time. Now we've got supranational organizations, corporations, uh, you know, such as Facebook, that has become the main instrument for you know, mobilizing public opinion for genocidal or semi-genocidal purposes, whether it's in India by the fundamentalist Hindu BJP against Muslim populations, or in the case of Rohingya in Burma, or like, you know, 
the uh, uh, <clears throat> white supremacist groups uh, in the United States, you know, the, the, you know, so the, the Facebook and corporations are not even in the scope of judicial processes in so far as these state crimes are concerned. So where, I mean, I, I know there are a lot to unpack here, but, but these are fundamentals and, and Facebook is a new and emerging global threat. You know, if we are concerned about, you know, large scale crimes that necessitate priming public opinions, you know, how, how, do, how do we handle these emerging situations with the convention that was rooted in the geopolitics of 1948? You know, we've got a similar, you know, electoral college parallel here, you know. And the, the, the instrument was in, created three years after the closure of Auschwitz and, and the reality had become more complex and, and moved on beyond the reach of the law. How do we handle this situation as anti-genocide um, scholars and activists? Okay, you have included many different elements, Ali, and I think that the, the best way to move on is trying to distinguish these elements and to analyze what can we have from the different bodies. So as you have said, the international bodies are mainly interspace bodies, which is, which is the reality. It's not something that we should see as bad or good. That's what that bodies are. The problem is what, what those bodies could get, could produce. And I think that the main element in that level is what I was saying to what we need is what the states have acquired three centuries ago or even four centuries ago, which is the separation between the judicial power and the political power and even the legislative power. So these three elements, this Montesquieu, Locke, Rousseau, it is the fundamentals of democracy that's what we need now from the international bodies. Okay, they are interstates, but we need this separation. So we need in, an international justice with autonomy and independence from the political powers. And of course, they will have links as the powers have links in any state, but at the same time, they need some independence. So that is at this <clears throat> Then we have the level of the peoples, which is absolutely another level. And it is not a replacement. It is something totally different. We need some internationalization of the contacts between the peoples. And I think that in that way, the permanent people's tribunal is fundamental because it's another kind of body. It has no possibility to punish anyone because it has no state power. It is just the voice of the peoples, of the organization, of the social movements of the whole world. So the idea is to strengthen the links between these social movements, to have an institution to internationalize and represent the voice of the peoples, which is totally different than the voice of the states. And it has different responsibilities and different possibilities. 
And I think at the same time, what we could have is this possibility of universal jurisdiction, which is a third level in which different states can approach the situation and denounce and even prosecute and punish in their own countries, which it doesn't mean the possibility to avoid uh, or, or to allow uh, military intervention. I'm strongly against this idea because the, the, the most powerful will be able to just justify their intervention. It is not the idea, but just the possibility that, okay, in my country, you won't be able to enter. And I will issue a warrant trying to prohibit your possibility to move all over the world. Or for example, in the case of Europe or, or the United States, the possibility to block the accounts of the responsible, that some different action would be much more effective trying to stop genocide than just uh, sending military intervention or dropping bombs that usually do more harm than good, but just the possibility to stop the possibility of these people to travel, to have accounts in, in foreign currency, to have this possibility of contacts all over the world. So that would be enough. So it would be a third level this level of the universal jurisdiction applied in any country in which the judges are able to take the case to analyze, to prosecute, and even to punish the perpetrators, even if they don't have possibility to, to send them to jail. So I think that if we can distinguish these different levels, so probably we could be more realistic in the possibility of what can we get from the different bodies as they are trying to understand how the walls work and what we can get from the different bodies as they are, because it is, it is correct that the international bodies are interstate bodies, because it should be that way. That's the agreement that the different states decide to agree and to go together as states trying to deal with different problems. But in this first level, the problem is trying to get what the states got three centuries ago in the international audience. Uh, <clears throat> Professor Stenton, what about this, uh, you know, the, the interstate system still rooted in uh, this anachronistic uh, Westphalian um, the model where states uh, allow each other to do anything they want to the populations under their territorial control, so long as dollars and goods and services flow across the border. Bangladesh just bought uh, 100,000 tons of rice from Myanmar, just as uh, it is, uh, you know, wanting Myanmar to be, um, you know, called a genocidal state by the ICJ. You know, Bangladesh is, um, make no uh, bones about you know, its support for Gambia allegations against Myanmar at ICJ, you know, the Gambia, Bangladesh even threw a party at the, um, at the Hague, you know, at the opening day of the public sitting uh, in December 2019. And then just, uh, you know, uh, last night, Reuters reported mm -hmm. that Bangladesh holds its nose and decided to buy 100,000 tons of rice from a state that it accuses, and rightly so, of committing a genocide 
and uh, you know letting uh, you know one million people get stranded in the subhuman conditions on Bangladeshi oil. Um, any uh, final thought? Um, um, <laughs> well, first of all, I want to endorse all of uh, what uh, Daniel said. We need. I think he, he's absolutely right. We need democracy with, uh, you know, uh, separation of powers, especially independent judicial powers. Um, I think we need universal jurisdiction. Uh, and I think we also need to uh, foster um, new institutions in which um, uh, there are new powers that in fact can hold states and individuals accountable. Um, Genocide Watch has proposed an optional protocol to the Genocide Convention um, that would in fact largely rely on regional organizations. Um, our view is that regional organizations are more likely to be able to um, do the kinds of diplomatic and other interventions necessary to actually prevent genocide. We have some good examples actually recently uh, in which, uh, for example, there was evidence that Nicaragua was planning to invade Costa Rica, which has no army. Uh, well, uh, the Organization of American States said, no, you're not gonna do that. And they sent diplomats up and they kept Nicaragua from doing it. I think that is the kind of intervention that is really uh, much way, I completely agree with Daniel about this. Uh, don't send in the Marines, um, the US Marines. Uh, my son was a US Marine, so believe me, I know that uh, uh, that is a very uh, awesome uh, force that has been much overused. Um, the other thing that I would argue is that we are on um, a historic trajectory towards um, overcoming the boundaries between states. Um, trade is accomplishing that. Um, I think if you look at the, what's happened in the European Union, despite the foolishness of the UK <laughs> withdrawing it from it, um, more and more uh, we are going to recognize our interdependence and more and more we're going to be able to um, create uh, create institutions like the European Union that transcend the power of individual states. And I think that's, that's a good example, I think, of what can be done. Uh, you have a European Court of Human Rights now that can hold states uh, responsible or accountable. Uh, I'd like to see that uh, the US is subject to such a uh, inter-American court <laughs> of human rights. Um, you know, I think that that sort of um, transnational uh, kind of uh, um, institution is something we need to build upon. Um, in terms of genocide, I think we really need to um, build an international mass movement to uh, oppose genocide. And I think, for instance, that uh, the Free Rohingya Coalition that has sponsored this is a good example. Here you have uh, members from you know, many countries who are part of your coalition. The coalition itself is part of the Alliance Against Genocide, which now has over 80 uh, member organizations and is growing every week. Um, and some of those organizations are way bigger than Genocide Watch, you know, the International Crisis Group and Minority Rights Group and 
uh, Survival International and some of the others. Uh, we'd like to, I, and besides that, of course, we work uh, with any organization that will work with us. We, uh, uh, we know that there are groups like Amnesty or Human Rights Watch that um, essentially don't join coalitions because they, uh, they're just too big. But uh, I think that recognizing our commonality as persons is going to increasingly be uh, the future of mankind. I really do. I think that uh, our species being, as Marx would have put it, uh, is what we are eventually going to recognize, our common humanity. Uh, and that is ultimately, I believe, you know, the answer to genocide. There's only one race and it's the human race. Yeah, well, um, it, it is a very um, sobering and yet optimistic note to end this conversation on. And uh, we have, uh, uh, you know, barely scratched the complex issue of uh, uh, genocidal intention and the politics surrounding it. And we haven't even uttered the word uh, ecologically trigger genocide. You know, that is, a, you know, uh, something that is on the horizon. If anyone who is concerned about the uh, uh, the, the safety and well-being of uh, large and small-scale communities around the world, you know the ecological crisis is teaching us. I mean, like even the virus is teaching us that uh, no country is safe unless neighbors are safe, right? And then unless, like you know, the neighbor can be like a hundred miles or three thousand miles, and so. Well, um, I've been talking to two of the most um, renowned genocide scholars and thinkers um, in the field of genocide international activism, Professor Gregory Stenton um, in um, the Virginia and uh, Professor Daniel Fierstein. Two of them are my um, uh, intellectual heroes um, and I have learned a great deal from both of you. And so um, one minute each, um, if you wish to um, um, leave your parting wisdom um, before I um, uh, uh, switch the uh, um, meeting off. Daniel. Okay, difficult one minute to finish. Okay, but... two minutes because you are... <laughs> no, no, yes. Linguistically, no. the Spanish may take longer than English. <laughs> no, no, that's okay, that's okay. Now, just uh, I, I endorse Greg's idea that uh, what we need is to understand the need for cooperation and that uh, confronting genocide is not only confronting genocide in the legal arena, but also confronting genocidal mind, genocidal ideologies that used to be this paranoid understanding of the world in which the other is your enemy and it is the responsibility of your sufferings. I think that's trying to understand that we should lead with the, the disasters like the pandemic. We can, we only can confront these problems in, in ways of cooperation, trying to understand that, that the, the way in which we can enrich our humanity taking in account other views, our experiences, other ways to deal with the reality is the, the only way to really confront 
the, the genocidal mind. So I think that the legal moment is the last moment. It is important to bring justice to the victims, but it is much more important to confront the, the genocidal mind and the genocidal ideologies, which is to understand the role of the other as the possibility to enrich ourselves instead as a, as a danger to ourselves. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, Professor Stanton, and then uh, we'll call it to a close. Well, first of all, I want to explain this. Uh, Daniel uh, has uh, accused me of actually during these sessions of uh, drinking yerba mate, mate. I mean, he thinks that, you know, he taught me this when I was in Argentina. And I just wanted to tell you that uh, what is in here is not a controlled substance unless, you know, coffee uh, qualifies for that, but that is what it is. Uh, I will, with that uh, humorous, I hope, <laughs> um, view of how, after all, what we've had here is a discussion that has literally leaped across the miles. Uh, Zarni, who is, I think, one of the most brilliant uh, genocide scholars in the world also, and who has come all the way from Burma and Myanmar, now living in London. We have Daniel, who's in Buenos Aires, one of my absolute favorite cities. And maybe it's the Yerba Mate that make all of you such great dancers. I think that must be it. Anyway, and then here I am in Virginia, a state that was built on slavery, but yet had also some of the founders of this country, many of them slave owners, who nevertheless had a vision of a future for the human race that transcended this slave state. And I will just end with uh, a benediction that I do like to end speeches with, and that is this one. We should never forget that justice is stronger than genocide, that love is more powerful than evil, and that life will triumph over death. Thank you. Thank you so much to both of you and to anyone who's listening to this uh, Facebook Live on Free Rohingya Coalition. Uh, this podcast will be made available on FRC uh, website and also it will be on a different social media platform and thanks again and have a, a very pleasant afternoon where you are uh, both of you and uh, we, we will uh, meet again thank you thank you Sam. bye bye Greg